Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It is four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and I'll be here till six this evening. Today, a grandfather was expelled from Palestine in 1948 and his grandson was expelled in 2020. I'll be speaking to Shaka Kazal. Concerns over oil and the coronavirus in Timor-Leste and also what's happening in the Philippines with the virus with Peter Murphy. The state of play in Venezuela, not the story that you get in the mainstream media, but from the charge d'affaires in Australia from Venezuela, and that's Daniel Gaspar. Kurdistan, past, present and possibilities for the future, with Theon Sciotis, who's a member of Australians for Palestine. But no, Australians for Kurdistan. I get so used to saying Australians for Palestine. Australians for Kurdistan. But first, let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healing to see what sort of a week he's had. A week, Jane Lister, when coronavirus has succeeded where the Save Albert Park group was unable to succeed for decades, leaving us, no doubt, shattered listener. Our exciting, quiet social weekend, mixing with the really important people at this privatised public park we'd planned, now vacant. What could we do for two boring days other than pop out and check the supermarket shelves? As empty as the feeling when we heard the great race was off. Hate to do this, but have to give credit where credit's due. Okay, we all enjoy that worn old joke. Is that the truth, or did you read it in the Herald Sun? Or as we know it, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. But Thursday, before the tragic news, the Grand Prix was not so grand, spot on with the truth. Front page wraparound promoting the great event that means so much to Melbourne, but willing to tell the truth. Melbourne's motor madness, it screams. And it certainly is a festival of fossil pollution, the biggest irony being the only way to get there is by public transport to watch the orgy of fossil and noise pollution. Still top marks to the whopping sin for acknowledging the madness. On the one hand, the public coppers will benefit from not having to provide the free public transport. Well, not free for the public purse, public transport. But on the other hand, it's only fair that we are going to up the subsidy we pay the Grand Prix organisation for bringing us this fun, fun, fun. A little token of compensation over and above the millions we've already handed them. It would have been so unfair to seek a refund, and why should the efficient private hand of the Grand Prix Corporation bear any of the costs? Remember when former big state supremo Jeff Footingmouth assured us the Grand Prix would not require one cent of public money, and he was correct. It's cost us trillions. Jeff's the bloke who also promised us the privatised electricity and gas companies freed from the bloated inefficient hand of the public sector would deliver super efficiency and lower prices, leaving us to ponder what we'd be paying if it was still inefficient. Anyway, that's the Grand Prix for another year and good riddance. The streets and gutters around Albert Park were flowing with the tears of distressed local residents. 
and flowing into the Yarra from the Crook Casino as the killings they enjoy arising from this public copper largesse evaporated. But spare a thought for, for it gets worse. They've decided to keep people apart by only operating every second eat your hard-earned machine. We will stop packering the suckers in, it announced. While on the giant corporate business that is sport, mentioned last week how the high priests of laissez-faire market forces competition policy on the great level playing field of world's best practice, the inefficient bloated public hand of government has no role in the business of business, hate anything that looks remotely like socialism, acknowledge that laissez-faire market forces can demand a role for the inefficient bloated hand like when government is required to meet little costs like their profits and the wages of their workers who aren't their workers but individual little businesses. Well, the corporate world of sport, Peter Vlandy's high-paid jobs, Head of horse racing in New South Wales, remember his oh-so-convincing interview in the Horse Cruelty Expose, this week Peter turned up as also head of Rugby League, that sport which makes us quintessentially True Blue Aussie. And how do we know that? Pete told us. True Blue Aussie without Rugby League is not True Blue Aussie, he philosophised. Direct quote, no embellishment, other than he called it Australia. And I thought... Yeah, yeah, if there was no rugby league, there'd be no true blue Aussie. They're symbiotic, kind of like a married couple, and Pete wants rugby league to do the screwing. His wise words preceded, the government must help us. It's not of our doing. So good to see Pete sees a role for the public purse, hand lots of it to the privately owned uh, clubs, without whom True Blue Aussie would not be True Blue Aussie. And presumably the government has a responsibility, well it must, he said, because it, the government, must be responsible for the virus, because Rugby League certainly is not. While the great believers in laissez-faire market forces demand a bit of government intervention, the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group said many caring employers and lazy, avaricious workers were consulting each other over the issue. It's two-way consultation. The caring employer consults the lazy, avaricious worker and tells him he is being stood down. Well, him or her is being stood down without pay. And the lazy, avaricious worker then knows he is, or, or she, he or she, is being stood down without pay. It's a two-way thing. We all know how sometimes we hear something that sends the excitement and expectation levels through the roof, like some mornings when the ABC presenter says, after 7.30 we'll be talking to, and Thursday morning, and again today, it was through the roof and into the stratosphere. After 7.30, we'll be talking to Matthias Rotten Tudor. Whee, I yelled. I think I even gave a little dance. Won't that be informative? And it was. Like, you attacked former Socialist Party big economic guru Wayne Swansong mercilessly when he failed to deliver the budget surplus he promised. So you must expect to be attacked mercilessly, mercilessly for failing to deliver the budget surplus you promised. There is no comparison, Matthias pointed out. Completely different circumstance. How can anyone compare the global financial crisis caused by the global financial crisis with the global financial crisis caused by the coronavirus 
aided and abetted by a summer where nature decided to get a little bit of its own back for what we're doing to it, if we're doing. Although Matthias didn't mention the nature bit because there's no scientific proof that what's happening is happening. Unlike the coronavirus where I got the impression the scientific proof suggests the Socialist Party may have been responsible. Matthias knows every evil and problem in the world is down to the Socialist Party. He's so unpredictable. What an exciting start to the day. On that, as part of his bumbling responses early in the piece, U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, tweeted that the coronavirus was fake news and was also an evil Russian or evil Chinese or evil Iranian or all of the above anti-U.S. of plot in the same tweet. Fake news? It doesn't really exist. Evil plot? It does really exist. Then again, logic was never Donald's strong point. In fact, it's hard to think of any strong point, unless stupidity is considered strong. Over there, the Democrat Party establishment went into free-fall panic, making the coronavirus response look measured when it looked like Bernie Sanders would become its candidate to ensure the hegemony of the largest capitalist economy. Putting it, pulling out all stops in a desperate bid to prevent the disaster. So desperate, its solution is Joe Biden. God, imagine the panic if someone posed a genuine threat to the capitalist system. The capitalist system. Deliberate tax avoidance and accounting mistakes by true blue Aussies, filthiest rich of the filthy rich individuals and companies is costing $772 million a year, according to the tax office. Okay, okay, for the sake of argument, we'll accept the low figure. But the accounting mistakes bit? Given these people pay a fortune to tax lawyers and tax consultants, it's either 100% tax, tax avoidance or they should sue their lawyers for incompetence. Still, I'm sure they'd all tell us they pay every last cent of their legal tax obligations. Like our great true blue Aussie icon, BHP, for bloody huge profits, bloody huge pollution, forced to pay $125 million after the bloody High Court ruled hiving off its true blue Aussie profits to its Singapore office didn't mean it could avoid paying tax on those profits. What thanks do they get for meeting all their legal tax obligations? Wasting everyone's time forcing bloody huge profits to spend more on its tax lawyers to work out how to circumvent this ruling so it can return to paying every last cent of its legal tax obligations. Despite that, the tax commissioner told a caring business class audience last week, well, he wouldn't address an audience of lazy avaricious workers, would he? Audience last week, they only had themselves to blame for public scepticism about corporate tax avoidance, presumably because of corporate tax avoidance, which we know is not tax avoidance, but paying every last cent of their legal tax obligations. So how dare the tax commissioner criticise an audience which so respects the law? Government, keep out. Matters legal, one, sadly not kept out. And the responsible media and corporates couldn't believe a magistrate lifting a bail condition that all these long-haired, commie, greenie, wooden worker in iron, climate change, if there is such a thing, protesters not be allowed to protest. In other words, allowing them to disrupt the business of business. 
dozens of Extinction Rebellion protesters who wreaked havoc on the CBD are free to protest, etc., etc. The Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin spoke angrily, responsibly, for all quiet troublewazzies. And finally, matters legal too. Convicted sex predator Harvey Wine, Women and Songstein expressed remorse as the judge put him away for 23 years. And it was genuine remorse. Oh, not for the numerous women who've accused him. No, no, no. He was sorry for all the men in his position. Well, Donald himself said it in that taped conversation on the bus. Wonder if Harvey saw the irony of being sentenced in the week of International Women's Day. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy, and I'm sure he'll be back tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock for City Limits. To help stop the spread of viruses like flu and coronavirus, good hygiene is essential. That starts with washing your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds whenever you cough, sneeze or blow your nose. Prepare food or eat. Care for someone sick, touch your face or use the toilet. Together, we can help stop the spread and stay healthy. Visit health.gov.au to learn more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Regular listeners to Tuesday Home Time might remember interviews over the past couple of years with an amazing woman, Alfat Mahmoud, a stateless Palestinian refugee born in a camp in Lebanon, whose family were forced from their home at gunpoint in the 1948 Nakba catastrophe. She is an internationally recognised peace activist and the founder of the Palestine Women's Humanitarian Organisation based in the refugee camp in Lebanon. Today I'm speaking with her son, Shaka Kazal, who on the 18th of February was denied entry to his homeland, Palestine, by the Israeli Defence Force. 72 years after his grandfather was expelled from his home in Palestine by Zionist forces. When I spoke to him recently, he was in Beirut, Lebanon, and I asked him first what was the lead-up to his 18th of February expulsion, which might explain why the Israeli immigration officers would not allow him to enter Palestine. Not his first time on the border, but this time he was denied entry. From what I understood and what happened a couple of weeks ago is that they had concerns why I was going a lot to Lebanon, which is my country of birth. And that was the main focus of uh, their questions. Then I was asked to log into my Facebook and Instagram, and they were asking several questions about certain posts I made in relation to deal of the century, in relation to refugees. Um, in relation to uh, my work with UNHCR. So that took uh, a, lo- a lot of, you know, a big chunk of their time in interrogating me. How long did that go on for? Five, six hours. And where were you during those six hours? Were you inside or outside or what? No, I was inside, inside like a room where the officers would come and interrogate me and then and then come again and then leave and come again. So, yeah. Did you believe that you might be able to get in or do you just believe that they were determined not to let you get in? Well, I've been to uh, Palestine like 10 times 
probably yeah, 10 times. And they always stopped me. They always interrogated me for for several hours. So this time I, I thought at first that it's going to be the usual drill. But then when they started asking me very intimidating questions and very, like, you know, in a way, very aggressive questions. Like when you're telling someone, you know, what were you doing in Lebanon while I was working? And then you tell them, well, then he told me, well, you make the perfect profile for a spy. I'm like, yeah, I'm not a spy. And then he was like, are you coming here for a certain mission? I'm like, of course not. I'm a writer. So that intimidation plus the the aggressive tone was different this time, which made me start thinking at some point that this time they might not let me in. Is there a particular reason, though? You didn't do anything different than you did other times? No, not at all. I mean, uh, other than that the political atmosphere today is very charged because of the deal of the century and because of several things, nothing changed from what I was back in October. Like, I was there in October. I always go to Lebanon for family, for work. So all that together, I didn't see anything that is out of, you know, that's unusual change of factors. You're in Lebanon now, but your home is Canada. Is that correct? My home is New York, but my, uh, for the last few years. But yeah, Canada is a home as well. What's your work in North America? Right now, I'm a full-time writer and a public speaker. That's what, that has been my uh, full-time job in the last uh, couple of years. I've also written for the Huffington Post New York. I uh, reported on the refugee crisis, so I traveled to Europe back in 2015, 2016, and, and um, did interviews in, uh, with refugees who were transitioning from Turkey all the way to Germany. Can I ask you about the book that you wrote in 2017, Tale of Tala? Yes, Tale of Tala is the story of women who fall a victim to human trafficking, which is something that is happening a lot amid the refugee crisis. And when I was doing my reporting in 2015, I was a little bit uh, compelled to write a story of a woman who is selling her body because she was urged and tricked into doing this. And usually when it comes to uh, human trafficking, to prostitution, to to this very dark world that victims have fallen a victim to, we don't speak much about it. We mention it in articles and everything, but we don't give it, we don't give it 300, 400 pages to tell someone that no one was born to be selling their body. There's no child that when you ask them, what do you want to be in the future, that will tell you, I want to be selling my body in the future. So I was really compelled to write the story and shed the light on such things. And then I wanted the nationality of the girl to be Palestinian because the world is somehow sometimes forgetting about the plight of Palestinian refugees because it gets lost in the mix of politics and in the mix of conflict and in the mix of a seven-decade seven decade epidemic, I'd call it. So all these factors made me come and sit down and write State of Sala. Your first visit was in 2015 to visit your grandfather's village. I didn't go with my mother because my mother is not allowed to go back 
since she still has the refugee card. He did not go physically. It was me who was actually giving them the videos and everything from there, and she was uh, on the other part of the border. You went in 2015 in search of your grandfather's village. What did you know about it? What did you find out from your mother? So when I went, I grew up listening to stories of my grandfather talking about that homeland, that village that he, 72 years ago, had to leave, you know, and become a refugee in Lebanon. And, you know, when you grow up around stories, around something or someone or someplace, your imagination takes you there before you actually arrive there. You know, I arrived in Jerusalem, got in a car, and started driving up north, looking at the map for, you know, Tarshiha. And when I got to Tarshiha, like, you know, it was, it's as if all your, it's, it was validation in a way and closure for me and for a lot of people I knew from my family that, you know, these tales of my grandfather are alive in this town. And, yeah, we could get lost amid um, so many things, amid conflict and aggression, but we as human beings cannot get lost in our own, you know, memories and tales. So it was such a beautiful feeling when you, when you go somewhere that you have, in a way, lived before. Can you explain what happened to your grandfather and the other relatives in 1948? Well, in 1948, they were expelled from Palestine. They had to go by foot uh, to Lebanon, where they became refugees for several generations up until today. That's 72 years ago. And the thing about Palestinian refugees is 72 years after, which is the longest, I believe, a refugee crisis to go on in our current time, you still see refugees are living in camps in Lebanon, Syria, and other parts of, you know, the Arab world. You still see solutions have not been offered. It has only gotten worse. No access to public, public health or public education. There's a lot of challenges faced today by Palestinian refugees, and it is a direct outcome of their expelling 72 years ago from their homeland. And today they live in limbo because, A, they can't go back home, but they are waiting to go back home. So it's as if you're sitting down waiting for something, and 72 years after, you, you just cling on to hope, and that's all you've got left. And one of those people is your grandfather's daughter, who is your mother. Can you tell her story? Yeah, my mother, you know, my mother is someone who was also born a refugee in Lebanon. So she, she was the first generation to be born refugee. I would be the second generation to be born refugee. Our grandparents had lived in Palestine, so they were, you know, they moved to Lebanon. Now... With my mother, she, um, as someone who was a nurse first and started uh, her own NGO, active in the community, it tells, for me, um, her story is such a powerful story of a woman who's, who faced a lot of challenges but also did not submit to these challenges. Um, I look up to her. I see hope in her um, every time I talk about Tashiha. Now, in my legal case, because I'm going to court uh, with Israel over my, what happened, my ordeal, 
and she's one of the people who give me a lot of strength. Can you talk about your childhood in that camp in Lebanon? You know, Jen, now this is the funny thing, because usually when, when you say refugees, refugee camp, when you say all this, you would think, you know, our human brain would take you right away to pure misery, right? But it wasn't misery at all, actually. It, I lived in a one-kilometer square camp. 20,000 people lived there. We created our own community in that one-kilometer square camp, whether it was um, the close-knit between, you know, our different families, kids. We made the best out. We made something out of nothing, like if, if there was no ball to play with, we created that ball. We got a bucket and we we kicked it around. You know, if there was um, if there was no TV, we created our own shows. I think we created Idol show before it was even on American TV. <laughs> childhood was yeah, it has its rough, you know, uh, its rough aspects. It's unfair when you see what's going on around you and how the world looks at you and what is it you don't have. But we learned from our parents and our grandparents, and we learned from facing these challenges. But every now and then, it's very important to look and see what is it that we have and how can we use what we have to make something in life. This is something that being born a refugee uh, not only teaches you, but, like, it's embedded deep into your roots. How old were you when you left Lebanon to go to Canada, and how did that happen? What was the reason to go to Canada? I was around 16, and first I went on an exchange program. It was an educational exchange program, and then the following year I applied for a scholarship at York University, and uh, it's called the Global Leader of Tomorrow. And I got a scholarship, and then I moved there. It went you know, I wanted to leave Lebanon. I knew I wanted to leave Lebanon because I saw the challenges faced by us, by refugees, uh, in Lebanon, which was, which is a country that has its own turbulences and issues. And, and then, uh, yes, and then Canada was somewhere where the scholarship program first was very good for me. And then the other thing, it was uh, as well uh, that Canada kind of had a lot of programs for people who, who wanted to, you know, come and immigrate. So it was the best option for me back then. I'm glad I did it. It must have been very hard to leave your family. Did you have any family in Canada that you could go to? No. No, I didn't have family in Canada. But Canada, like with, you know, the thing is a lot of people became like family in Canada because, you know, they opened their homes, and they oh, it was very, very hospitable, great people that didn't make me feel homesick, even thousands of miles away from home. How long after that did you go to Palestine? Uh, I went to Palestine for the first time in 2016. And that was for your grandfather? I went there to honor my grandfather, yes, and to see my homeland. It's my homeland. What is left of the old village? where your grandfather uh, lived? No, it's that. There still is a Shiha, about 4,000 people living there. And um, a lot of the land is empty because the people are, are absent. 
they are expelled, they are refugees. Now she has a beautiful place, beautiful community. Also, you know, great to see people that in some way we share the similar story. How many times have you been back after that one, before this aborted one? Um, I go every Christmas. I like spending Christmas and New Year there. So it's been every year since 2015 that I go every Christmas, New Year, and spend time in Bethlehem and then spend time in Tarshiha. Uh, Do you have other friends who come with you or you go by yourself? I've been by myself and I've had friends from Canada and the States join me on certain trips. What is your court case? How, how are you going to approach that? First thing, Israel expelled me based on a law for public security, public consideration, and public disorder. You know, it's very, it's a wrongful decision they made. This law has been very broad and general. It's law 5712-1952 of uh, Israel. I put on Twitter what happened with me. I put a tweet that I was denied entry from my homeland, and a lot of people reached out, lawyers from there, saying we will help. I appointed a lawyer who is from Tashriha, and we are now putting the appeal, and we will go into court, and I will go into every single court session until I win this. Where will the court be? Uh, the court is going to be in either Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. We will be knowing sometime this week. All this backfires on Israel, doesn't it? Because if they do this to you and other people, the publicity that comes from it is far more important in one sense than you being denied because so many people get to know mm-hmm. how you've been treated. Yeah, well, with this case, there's also kind of persistence and resistance. These two things today, for example, in 2020, our world is seeing an influx of 70-plus million refugees and displaced people and migrants. And it's very important to be exchanging hope, to let someone know that, no, when you are persistent and resistant, to the hardships of life, you get somewhere. And I really want my case to inspire not only Palestinians, but every single person today who is facing a cha- every single refugee or migrant in the world who are facing challenges, to remember that sometimes we really have to put the resistance gear on and the persistence and work hard and see what options we have and never, ever get, give up. Are there any challenges for you, a Palestinian living in New York? You know, same, probably very simple challenges to, you know, today we have a narrative of, I don't want to use hate, but there's a narrative of ignorance going on because we're seeing a lot of politicians go up and say, you know, build a wall, kick them out, blah, blah. They're forgetting that we're all human. They're forgetting that at some point in our ancestors, whether we are kids living in uh, New York or someone in uh, or or someone in Sydney or someone in Melbourne, or if we look into our DNA, someone from our ancestors 
had to migrate, had to move from one place to another. That's how humanity had operated for thousands of years. I mean, even if we look into our prophets, Moses was a refugee. He had to flee for safety. Jesus had to flee for safety. Muhammad had to flee for safety. So today, with this narrative of, you know, in, uh, with this, you know, dark narrative about migrants and refugees and and people facing challenges, it's no longer like if I am personally facing challenges in New York. Maybe I'll tell you no. I don't see these challenges today for me. But part of, you know, I, when I am in New York and I'm listening to the news and I see someone just yelling, it's refugees, blah, blah, this is how I get affected. So it doesn't have to be on my day-to-day thing, but it does have to also be of what we're witnessing from people around us and from the energy around us and stuff. You know, and from how we are how we are dealing with this crisis, international crisis. Do you have any idea when the court hearing might be? Yeah, yesterday we submitted the appeal. I spent days and days and days just studying also for this law because I told my lawyer that I want to be aware of everything going on. So I've been for the, and I I've been enjoying studying. I've been enjoying this process of, because for me, my grandfather expelled 73 years ago, 72 years after, his grandson is getting expelled. Both wrongful decisions, both decisions that that are unfair. This time, with a more open world and a more connected world and a more understanding world, I hope, there's room for me to be like, no, I will, I will face this challenge, this, this decision. Thank you for talking with me today. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. And that was Shaka Kazaya speaking to me from Lebanon a week or so ago about his ordeal being expelled from Palestine by the Israeli Defence Force 72 years after his grandfather was expelled in 1948 and the family forced to walk to Lebanon and hopefully we'll be here an update on his challenge to the courts in Israel. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Hi, I'm Jacob from the Friday Rave, and I'm also on 3CR's Committee of Management. Now, the community of passionate people that founded 3CR a long time ago made some tough decisions. For a start, they committed themselves and a growing community of listeners to back their vision of owning our station and in doing so remaining independent of the government and corporate influence. They did this by fundraising, brick by brick, with working bees, door knocks, on-air drives and all the rest of it. You've all been there. 
Now, their commitment has kept 3CR on air for over 40 years. That's a long time even in my life. But now, we need your commitment to keep this great theme going. Now, you can subscribe online at 3cr.org.au or phone us at the station on 94198377 or even stop me on the bloody street if you see me at some rally or other and ask me for a membership form. You need to become a member of Melbourne Radical Radio and subscribe. Next, I'm speaking with Peter Murphy, human rights and trade union activist. And the issue is Timor-Leste. There's a couple of issues, the Greater Sunrise oil fields and there's also the coronavirus for East Timor. It is a slightly noisy interview because Peter this morning was at the airport in Sydney ready to catch an overseas flight and that was the only time that he was available. So do persevere. It's an important issue for the people of East Timor. So let's hear it from Peter Murphy. There were two events around Greater Sunrise in recent years. One was the delimitation of the border between Australia and Timor-Leste, which I think was around uh, May 2018. Then the um, decision by the Timor-Leste government to purchase a majority or a controlling interest in the Greater Sunrise joint venture. They bought out BP and Shell, I think, were the two companies. And so the government of Timor-Leste now through a company owns about 54% of the joint venture and therefore I think in their mind a controlling interest. But the, the terms of the joint venture are that there has to be consensus among the partners before doing anything. So it's sort of still Woodside is the, the third, the other partner still in the joint venture. And Woodside, since all that, have negotiated with the Timor-Less government for guarantees that they won't suffer any losses due to Timor-Less taking over control of the development of the field. There was a decision that the guarantees would be by committing the petroleum fund of Timor-Less to assure Woodside that they would make no losses. So it's all a big gamble because the cost of um, even the onshore processing of the gas as planned by Timor-Less is about a $16 billion investment and the, the petroleum fund is about $16 billion. Then the uh, Timor-Less government has now taken on 54% of the cost of developing the field itself. So it's, you know, I would say a very high-risk pathway and I think that the recent Fretland conference in, in Dili you know, passed a significant resolution you know, about that situation. One other aspect of the treaty between Australia and Timor-Leste on, on the seabed boundary was that it, it included a, uh, an agreement that Australia owned a significant portion of, of the Greater Sunrise gas field. So that, you know, when you actually look at the map, it doesn't make much sense to the eye, but I think that was a political compromise made basically by Shanana Kushmao, who led the negotiations. So uh, politically speaking, it's, uh, it's interesting because Shanana has now dissolved his own government. His party, CNRT, is having some kind of dispute with the Popular Liberation Party, led by the current acting Prime Minister, Tao Matanruak. So despite all of these 
really dramatic gestures about Greater Sunrise and developing that gas field. Somehow or other, it wasn't enough for Shinanda uh, Bushmau. So now there's a sort of a high level of uncertainty about what kind of government will be formed for the remainder of the term of this parliament. And the parliament should operate up till 2023. Uh, if, if they can't form a government that's stable, then uh, there would have to be another election, which will be the third election since 2017, within you know, what should have been one term of the parliament. What does Guzmao actually want in all of this? You know, it's very hard to actually perceive his goal. There's some one part of me looks to the psychology of it, but somehow or other he hasn't he hasn't really got the respect he thinks he deserves as a sort of uh, symbol of national liberation. Uh, that could be part of it. But there's, there'd be because we're talking about so many many billions of dollars here. There's probably, you know, there's probably some kind of economic motivation going on, but it's hard to say what it is because you know, the government has actually passed all the proposals he made about the development of the gas field. So there's just something going on there. Like one of the details of the problem with the last government, the one that recently resigned or collapsed, is that the CNRT had made nine nominations for members of the cabinet back in. 2018. The president, who is from Fredland, the name is Luwala, rejected those nine on the grounds that it would, there was a, he had to uphold the integrity of the government and the constitution. So it was a sort of very broad reference to problems of uh, corruption in the behaviour or the records of those nine nominated people. Since then, the numbers whittled down to about five, but it seems that Shanana Kushmau feels that he must have those five individuals in the government, otherwise there won't be a government. So I think uh, we're yet to see how that will actually pan out because the president's still there until 2022. So there is a sort of a setting here for a very clear sort of standoff or battle of will about what's really right and wrong in the makeup of a new government. How is all this impacting on the people themselves in East Timor or Timor-Leste? I'm not really sure, except that it's a sort of economic setback. Under the, under the Constitution, if the budget is rejected, which is how the government was brought down, then the, the budget of the previous 12 months divided into 12 parts and spent month by month that way. And uh, that means there's no new programs. And as, as um, have some programs uh, wound up, they can't be replaced. So there is a sort of a slowdown, really, of... Uh, government-supported economic activity, and the government is a very important driver of economic activity in Timor less. So there's that side of it. And, you know, the people are basically pretty poor, and, you know, this will just add pressure in their lives. I think that they've seen it all before, and there's an expression of frustration, you know, that the politicians can't get the country going forward properly. I think uh, they've seen Shimana just now uh, be the principal actor in these things for a few episodes now. So I think uh, the frustration is with him. But I think there's also a level of fear because Shanana Gushmau is somehow pushed too far or gets too frustrated, then there's a danger of uh, violence and uh, destruction. Uh, and people have really, really had enough of that. So uh, they do tolerate a lot of bad behaviour from the politicians in order to avoid something worse.
And into this mix comes the COVID-19 virus. Yes, I think uh, you're lucky for Timor that, uh, you know, it's relatively small, 1.4 million people, I think, Timor less, and uh, they've got the border with Indonesia where I think that uh, a lot of people realise that COVID-19 is a bit on the rampant side, but they don't have that many interactions of flights and visitors and so on from, you know, Europe, uh, even from China. There is a Chinese workforce there, but they tend to be living in their own barracks building roads and things like that. So Timor could could manage to control the spread of the virus, but the truth is that if it got going, their health system is very weak. It wouldn't really cope with a lot of cases of people needing hospital treatment. So there were two decisions that the Fredland seem to have advertised. One saying that they want to review the treaty with Australia and they want serious, in-depth studies of the economics of the projects which Shanana uh, Gushnow is pushing for greater sunrise. So I think that's a very significant initiative about the border because Fredland is really challenging the nas- national liberation credentials of Shanana Gushnow by making that statement. And it will annoy the Australian government. But uh, I, think, I think there's <laughs> such a huge, huge gamble underway now about the greater sunrise gas fields, that uh, it's very important that some organised political voice in, in Timor-Leste has called for a more sober approach. And also the fact that Shanana seems to flit in and out of the country when he feels like it. Yes, I mean, he's often, most of the time, out of the country. Uh, he just returned, I think, ten days ago from a reasonably lengthy stay away. So, yes, it's... Um, Again, this is one of those things that um, people will tolerate a lot, but you know, from the outside, it doesn't look good that um, a leader who who really still controls the, the sort of political direction of the country, even from the back room, is so absent. You know, so little uh, actually speaking and discussing with people in Timor. So, in the near future, are we likely to see Timor? Isolating themselves, keeping the borders closed. Yes, I think that I think we should expect that since it's happening all around the world, you know, international travel is is grinding to a halt, and uh, you know, Timor could easily uh, manage to take part in that exercise and, and then review the situation in three weeks' time or one month's time, and so on. Yeah. We should expect that. Just finally. Peter, another concern is for for you is is the Philippines. What's the situation there with the virus? There was a lot of uh, light-hearted comments from the government for a while about the the virus, but people people obviously were very frightened. And, and last week there was a declaration that all of Metro Manila would be shut down for a month. So it's a total attempt by the government to control movement in and out of the city and people have been told to stay home. And uh, there are actually a lot of soldiers and police on the street, armoured cars and uh, so on. So the uh, people, I think, are really, really frustrated with this because it's a sort of show of government presence and strength, but there is very little testing available. Uh, People who are feeling ill are having trouble getting help. And um, if they approach police, they, they often get harassed. 
so because I think the police don't know what to do actually about COVID-19 either. We're actually seeing the use of the military and police in, in Metro Manila on top of a pretty severe repressive operation against critics of the government in the media, um, in the trade union, in the legal profession, in the churches. So most people, I think, are interpreting the crackdown in Metro Manila as a really a security operation and all feeling pretty scared. OK, Peter, thank you. OK, Jan. And that was Peter Murphy, activist for trade unions and for the people around the world struggling against injustice. And it was a little bit of a dicey interview because of Peter was at the airport in Sydney waiting for boarding of a plane. But we persevered, and I'm sure that you got the information that he was in, imparting in that interview and hopefully talk to him in more detail about the Philippines maybe next week on the program. It's now 4.48 and here's another message from the government. Viruses like flu and coronavirus spread when tiny droplets from coughs and sneezes land on surfaces that others touch. You can help reduce this risk by coughing or sneezing into your elbow or upper arm or use a tissue and put the tissue in the bin straight after. Then wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Together, we can help stop the spread and stay healthy. Visit health.gov.au to learn more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR 8.55am in Melbourne, Australia. Step 3 is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Daniel Gaspari, the Charge Rate Affair for Venezuela in Australia, was in Victoria last week to speak to a number of public meetings, including one here in Melbourne. One month earlier, on the 13th of February, the government of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela requested that the International Criminal Court investigate serious crimes committed against the Venezuelan people by the government of the US, due to the implementation of an economic blockade and unilateral coercive measures euphemistically referred to as sanctions. This was one of the important issues I wanted to speak with Daniel about, but first I asked him about his role as Chargé's Affair and how he came to be in that position here in Australia. I have been uh, doing as a diplomat. I started in 2000, in early 2000s. I was appointed to Chile, where I stayed there for almost four years. Yeah, and then uh, I did a job there, which I was supposed to do, which I did. And then President Chavez was still alive. He went to Chile for the ascension to power of President Michel Bachelet first time. That was in 2006. So then he said, okay, Daniel, you did your job. You go back home. And I went back home, and I left diplomacy for seven years. 
uh, I was appointed for him as a president of a state company that's in charge of recycle, which is a very good uh, job to do. My country needs to do a lot of things regarding recycle, which haven't been done. So I was very proud to accept that responsibility. But after seven years, I was very tired. I think we did the job. So then somebody replaced me, and I get again to diplomacy. So I was sent to Australia six years ago. What's the training for yeah. to be a diplomat? There are many different kind of professions. It's not only one. Many, many people, they study international studies or politics or international relations. There are many. But in my case, I'm a business administrator, which is quite related but not real direct with this. And uh, there are many, many professions. I have a colleague in Canberra. She's a translator. So she went to university, she studies for this. So there are many professions, you know. Usually there are uh, politics, science, people who study for politics or international relations, but there are many others. Yeah. And what does the job entail for you? Uh, here, well, we have uh, different um, priorities. Certainly as the relation with Australia now is not that close as we wish. And um, we get some priorities to the uh, solidarity, which is many people in Australia understands what's happening in Venezuela and many other countries in the region. And, of course, these people support us. So we take care of them very well. I try to do my best. It's not easy because this is a very big country. And also from here we handle 17 countries, not only Australia and New Zealand. We handle the Pacific. So we try to do that. That's why I'm here today in Melbourne. And it's because uh, we have a couple of activities today, tomorrow and Sunday. So we are going to do reports about the recent visit of some people from Australia to Venezuela in January. So they were there with their own eyes. They watched the reality of my country, which, by the way, Jan, is quite different from what you see in the media. So I'm going to join them today. They will do a report on the, what they saw in Venezuela, what's the situation there, and certainly um, to give, you know, this, some love to people who love also us. So that's good, too, you know. And, and President Chavez always says that love is paid with love. So we are love people, you know. And that's what I'm here today. And actually, you asked me, what is the other? Well, we did a lot of things. We have a lot of relations with many other countries who are also in Canberra. The relation with the Pacific is very important. Pacific is very solidarity with Venezuela. The whole countries in the Pacific. Also, I handle Timor-Leste, which is very, very important for us. Uh, and New Zealand also has a good position regarding us. Some other things like, for example, um, some interchange and also consulate because we have uh, not much but around 6,000 Venezuelans in Australia and New Zealand, which we care of them, of course, and it's a lot of work, documents, papers, bureaucracy, and, you know. So, yeah, that's, that's it. And how does it impact to be in a country where our government doesn't recognise or is very hostile to your government? How does that impact on your work? Yeah, it impacts uh, kind of it because certainly, even though Australia has not been the most confrontative country, it, there was there was no sense under our perspective for well, actually in the international arena. Many people don't understand why Australia takes this position because certainly Australia is very far away from Venezuela. Our relations have been always good. We were, even though in the last year we were interchanging votes on the international, I mean, in the multilateral arena. So we were voting from each other, we were interchanging votes, and sometimes voting. Uh, they, by the way, Australia voted for us for the Human Rights uh, Council, uh, not far away. 
but they, they have some uh, also observations regarding the human rights in my country. So how can you vote for us if you? But this is certainly, and I tell you why Australia take this position is certainly a political thing. There's not other way. So I'm very sure that for Australia there is no sense for this position. There's nothing that we both can you know collect from this position. We would be happy if Australia would be close to us now. We need from the international community. It would be good for us to come with Australia. But um, what, how impact my job? Well, sometimes, you know, Australia have been not that aggressive with us because the first you know, step you will do if you don't recognize a government which I represent, if you just uh, ask him to leave. You know, I'm still here. So that means that, well, me, we are still here. So actually, we are still, you know, working. We do our best in order to get again close to Australia, to ask them to change the position. Majority of the countries to, that took this position, they are backing up now. They realize that there's not an option, you know, recognizing a, a self-proclaimed president who doesn't have any support. There's no reason. The only reason for Australia to, for many other countries to recognize him is because of the close relation with Mr. Trump. So Mr. Trump, you know, today it's, uh, it's a big deal in the whole world. <laughs> for some for good, some for bad. But certainly in this case, I think it's only an impulsive act of Mr. Trump. And of course, it's not just Mr. Trump. It was the President Obama as well. Yeah, but with Obama, I think that things were, even though they not were... Not so bad. Top, yeah, much better. Yeah, 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 yeah. We still have relations with the U.S. And we were able to talk. With Obama, I think that we were able to talk, which is necessary in this world, you know. But with Trump, it's not possible. There's, there's, he's a kind of, this is not a secret, he's kind of impulsive, you know. He's uh, trying to, uh, you know, take care of a big country uh, using the Twitter and, and giving instructions to Twitter, which is sometimes difficult. And, and, well, you see now what's happening with coronavirus, you know. See, they cannot even handle this, even on a very big economy like U.S., which is a big contradiction. But going back again, you know, again, it, it's not a big impact related with my job. Of course, my job is to bring back Australia to the original position now. And, of course, my job is to put both countries as close as possible. And I will do all my best in order to, to be, since I'm here, to do this, to put it back to us. And um, we hope we can do it. We think that many countries, as I mentioned before, are go, going back. And Europe... Argentina, they changed the government, they, they go back because, of course, it's, it's, they took a decision which was, was more political than logical. And uh, Argentina and Mexico and Spain and uh, Italy never took this position. And, and, and we have the support of many good and big countries in the world. Even though Mr. Trump is upset with us, we still have good friends. And, of course, it's not just Mr. Trump, is it? It's the men behind him. Yeah, it's a, I think that I always talk about Mr. Trump because, you know, Jan, that I'm very sure that the majority of the population of U.S. don't agree with this. I'm very sure if you go the streets of U.S., I have many years I haven't been there, but certainly I, I'm very sure that people in U.S. don't understand what we are fighting with them, you know. So it's just a political decision. That's what I always say, Mr. Trump, I never talk about the country. And, and I'm very sure that a big majority of the country don't agree with any war, with any blockade, with, you know, any, you know, these measures, coercive measures which are doing big damage to my people in my country, you know. As you know, we are the biggest reserve of oil in the world. Our big income comes from the oil. We export oil. So if with all these measures, the blockade, it's not allowing us to export, you know, oil, which is for us, uh, it gets a big economic impact, you know. 
in my country there is not opposition in government, pro-government people, there's only one Venezuelan. No, no, approve this. Nobody wants this. Only Guaidó, by the way, <laughs> the self-proclaimed president, he's calling for more sanctions. But nobody supports him when he asks for more sanctions because nobody wants to, you know, suffer or to, you know, pass these sad moments. And, and many people of the U.S., I'm very sure, they, they don't agree with Mr. Trump in this. Well, when you're talking about oil and you're talking about sanctions, we have to talk about the International Criminal Court lawsuit over the sanctions. Yeah. What's happening? Why has it happened? Yeah, we just went a couple of weeks ago. Our Minister of Foreign Affairs, he went to the International Criminal Court of Justice and we certainly did a claim on it because the sanctions are certainly a criminal action against people. People is passing away. We have a lack of medicines because we cannot, even though having the money, we, we cannot buy the medicines in the international market. Can you explain how the sanctions work? Yeah, in many ways, but the most important, well, maybe the most sensible is we cannot use the, the bank system. So that means I cannot transfer your money. So, and that's how the commercial works, the world, the world commercial works now. You transfer money through banks. But, and it's sad to say, but I need to recognize that the, the bank system is mostly controlled by U.S. banks. So if I'm going to transfer your money from my bank to your money, usually it goes through a U.S. bank. So if you block there, the money will never get to you. And by the way, I need to tell you something else, which is very sad. Usually this third party, which you never know who is it, because you went transfer, you never know them. They took a commission, but you never know who they are. They Sometimes they kidnap the num they steal the money. So they don't give it to you, they don't give it back to me. So we have at this moment a big amount of money uh, just in banks of U.S. We don't know where it is. They just steal our money. They steal our company, oil company in U.S. Cidgo, you know. It was steal by Trump. Actually, a company in Col Colombia also which is Venezuelan state-owned company. And it, it was an oil company who served, by the way, of gas to U.S. markets. So it was good for U.S. people. That's what I mentioned before, that if they were, you know, fair and, or trying to be, you know, objective on when they take these decisions, certainly there was no reason for Mr. Trump to kidnap our companies. They steal them companies. We have also a big amount of gold in the Bank of London. England, you know, they don't want to give us the old gold because it's sanctions. That's the way sanctions work. So if I cannot transfer your money, we cannot, uh, we cannot move. We don't have, for example, for oil tankers, they don't have insurance. So how can we insure them? We got no insurance. They don't allow them to park at any port. So if they park in your port, in Melbourne port, they will give a sanction to Melbourne port. This boat cannot park anymore in any many other countries. So it is like a lot of it's a big chain with a lot of you know many many things that happen when you have sanctions that they don't allow you to do anything. They just you know try to kidnap you, put on and stop everything. The economy of the of your country try to stop it, which is tough. So there's no legal allowance for this. This is mighty's right. This is completely illegal. But this is the big country, you know, that they feel they are the owners of the world. Completely illegal. There's not a word in any international law that can assume that blockade or sanctions are legal. Sanctions are completely illegal. And that's your argument at the court? Of course. Yeah. And the effect of it, which is most important that the sanctions perceive, you know, is, you know, what are the effects of, of these sanctions? It's important to check this. So is it exports as well as imports? Of course. Yeah, if I cannot pay you for the medicine, how can I buy them? Of course. Yeah, no money. We cannot import it. Chips cannot come to our ports. Flights cannot fly to our country. 
we, we cannot fly to anywhere. They give sanctions to our airline. You know, Cumbiasa, which is the local airline, they have 42 planes. They have sanctions now. They cannot fly anywhere. And you know, this local, uh, this, I mean, our airline, it is, it's most served for social service. They were bringing people back home. These people that left the country because of this economical situation, they went to Chile, Peru, and, the, and Brazil, many countries, and also Central America. They are coming back. So we are using free, no charge at all. These planes are going up and down, bringing people back home. And we cannot do it anymore. So why are they doing this? Because they don't want us to bring the people back home. They now realize that they're better in Venezuela than in any other country. So we are trying to bring them, you know, bring them back to the, you know, to the country, which is, by the way, under international law, our obligation. So they don't allow us to do this. So how can you do your work if you can? You know, everything is like being blocked everywhere. You know. You are listening to an interview with Daniel Gaspari, the translator fair for Venezuela in Australia, and this is 3CR. I'm just wondering why you've chosen the ICC because. America or the United States isn't a signatory to it. So mm. what's the point in taking them to court? Well, certainly um, it's an important sign for the world. I think I need to tell you, Jan, the world understands what's happened with the U.S. Either they have their friends or they have their allies. The whole world understands. And the best example of this, you see how they vote, how the whole world is voting against the blockade against Cuba. You can see it. The whole world, they understand that U.S. is not acting on the right way. But the thing is that because I'm the big man, you know, I'm the strong guy, I can bully you, I can do everything, you know, against you, and nobody can say me anything. And many of these small countries, because we are in the Caribbean and we understand well how the region works, they need cooperation, they need money from U.S. They need the support of U.S. Because if they don't have it, they will bankrupt. So it's difficult. So we understand them. We understand. I understand. Of course, we don't, I don't agree with them. Because you need to have a position and you need to be, you know, always in the same position. But certainly, many countries in the world, they just turn to Trump because they need him. It's not because they really trust to him. It's not love, as I mentioned before. It's not just a connection because they think he's doing the right thing. It's just because they need him. You know, so it's, that's all. Yeah. So what's the procedure for this case? Well, we are waiting for them to take a decision. I think in the next days we will have some advance. Only a couple of days ago they published this uh, document. On the, uh, it was published, I mean, openly uh, published on the web page so people can check, read it, and they can see the arguments that we have. Arguments were very well explained. I think that there is no court in the world who won't give us the reason. Sixty pages. Yes, very large, yeah. It's very large. But for these cases, it's not that much. Sometimes it's more. I think it, it will need to write that much in order to let the international community know what's happening in my country. You know, it, it, it's very tough. I was my whole life fighting against the blockade against Cuba. But you need to feel it. You need to you live it to understand how, how it works. It's terrible. And there's nobody who can say anything. You just need to accept it. It's like the big man, your father comes and when he, you know, he gives you a punishment and you need to accept it because that's the father. Even if it's fair or not. So we need to accept it because he's the big man. Just explain what it means to the person on the ground, these sanctions. A working class person, how does it impact on them? Terrible. terrible. No medicines, no food. We're a big importer. Unfortunately, we still import a lot of things. 
we are producing, of course, some things because with President Chavez and, and of course, uh, with President Maduro, we raise our own production a lot. We now we produce a lot more food, a lot more uh, beef, but it's not enough to cover. We are a big country, more than 30 million people. Almost same popularity of Australia, population of Australia. So in a small country with big population. So we are on that path to do it. Of course, with these sanctions, difficult. We have been losing the capacity of production. But still we produce many things, but not enough for the whole people. We don't produce medicines. And many of these big laboratories, of course, they move to Colombia and other countries because they don't feel that they, you know, can work in a country with, with sanctions. They, can, they are not able to work in a country with sanctions, so they need to move. How have those sanctions affected the missions? The missions that were brought in under Chavez for the housing. Oh, yeah. Okay, the missions are still working well. We have more than 3 million houses, so the housing program is still working. Security program is is impacted, of course, because the whole country is impacted. The economy is impacted. But uh, the priority of the government is still working, move forward with the missions. Missions are a big priority for us. Health, education, housing are big priorities, so we are putting all our effort in order to maintain these missions in the same level where it was before. Very difficult, Jan, very difficult, but we still move forward. We have good friends, which is good. Many of the houses we do it with the Chinese people, and uh, so they still help us. How do they get around the sanctions? case of China and Russia, they are very big economies, big countries. They don't care about that. So they give some sanctions to Rofnet, which is the Russian company, just a week ago. And you see the response from Russia is, we don't care. More or less, that's what they said. I tell you before, it's it's more like uh, these these decisions are more like, you know, euphoric decisions, like because, you know, he's upset some days. But there's no logical, because who's losing in this case also is U.S., we all lost under the sanctions. We were the bigger supplier of oil to the U.S. You think they don't need oil? They need them. They need the oil. We never cut the, the, the flow of oil to the, And by the way, because we have this Cidgo company, which was Venezuelan state company we supplied. To, to, we have refineries in, in, in U.S. And we never cut the supply. We maintained the supply to U.S. And they were still our biggest, you know, one of the biggest we supplied. And we were the first supplier of oil to them. So now, and they feel, of course, they need to be filled. They, they, they need that oil. They are buying oil from other faraway countries, from Saudi Arabia, from Middle East countries, which is different. It's more expensive. Transport for this is, you know, it's an important, a very important uh, matter on the, on the price of the oil and, and price of the final product. And it's not good for U.S. It's not good for anybody. But big countries, they don't care. India, China, Russia... And many countries, even though in this region, Indonesia, they, they support us. They don't care about this. They think there's a principle of non-interference in internal matters. They understand this very well. They just leave us do our job. Tell us about the opposition to the government in Venezuela. You've got Guido. Who's behind him? Well, certainly Mr. Trump. And a couple of people who's there his family, maybe some more people, but not that much people. But in Venezuela itself? Well, some big groups, economic groups, of course. But he's losing a lot of power now because they realize that he's not going anywhere. And, of course, these economic groups, when they support you, they want to have, you know, some retribution. Uh, in this case, they know that he's not going anywhere. doesn't stop him going to the U.S. or to no, Europe? No, because he has the support from U.S., from some countries of Latin America, why, though, he went a year ago, he was somebody like you and me, nobody. <laughs> but now he's very rich. 
He steals a lot of money. There are proofs are. We, we already showed the proof on the international. He steals a lot of money. And many of this money was given by U.S. He, he has open accounts in the U.S. He opened accounts in the U.S. with a lot of money. He buy taxi lines in, in, in Europe for his father. He has now big houses. He was a normal worker. He was a parliamentary, by the way. People in my country, they are, they, they are not blind. They understand very well what's happening. And actually, I mean, if they are in a position or pro-government people, they understand well what's happening with him. He's not going anywhere. You know, this year in January, Jan, he was not elected as a president of the National Assembly anymore. But you know what Mr. Trump did? He said we will support him as a president. But he don't have the numbers. So he's going against our law. Because we have a different president. Majority of the, the parliamentarians, they vote for another. So now they are not recognizing the, pres the legitimate president of a country and they are not recognizing the legitimate National Assembly. Because they have another, another person who's not part of this that they recognize as a president. So things are tough. Yesterday he was trying to defeat the government again. He was convocating the biggest march of the world. He don't put 100 people. He wasn't able to convoke 100 people. He doesn't have any support at all. People don't, don't trust him anymore. He's going outside my country just asking for sanctions. He should be in jail. I am one of the people who supports that he should be in jail because he's against our law. And in this case, Jan, he was up and down talking all over the streets. Where is a democratic country? I mean, if Venezuela was not a democratic country, he would be talking around the streets. And he should be in jail. But because we are a very democratic country, he's around. But he's against our law. He should be in jail, not, not in the streets. But we leave him. I remember President Chavez, he was very, very clever. He said, just leave him talk, just leave him talk. He, he killed himself, and he's killing himself. Just time, you know. Finally, people realize that this is not the option. You mentioned before that the medical situation is not good because of the sanctions. What's going to happen if coronavirus comes to Venezuela. Well, at this time today, we don't have any case, which is good. Certainly, we have a very a, a strong health system. But it has been weakened because of very the lack weak. of... That's right, yeah, that's mm -hmm. right. Cross my fingers every day. I think that sooner or later, it will come to every country, which is unstoppable. Today, we have the first case in Canberra, mm -hmm. which is, you know, it's a very small town, and it happens also in Canberra. We are prepared for this. We already have a big number of kids which are being distributed at the hospital in order to detect the, the virus on time. Uh, we will isolate the people. We are prepared for this. We have a big support from Cuba. They have a good experience with this. And certainly I am very sure that we're going to face it at the best way. Uh, I think that in this case also time is our best asset, you know, is on our side. So on times going, moving forward, things are getting better for us. Are you aware of the situation in Cuba at the moment? Yeah, no cases at all. No, no. no cases at all. There are a couple of countries in, in the Caribbean who has, and actually in the region, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Brazil has cases of uh, the only country in the South America which didn't get uh, this coronavirus is Uruguay and Venezuela. Up to date. I don't know what's going to happen because this is spreading very fast. But certainly today this uh, Venezuela and Uruguay we don't have. There are some in Central America, El Salvador, by the way, um, and a couple of more countries. So I remember in Central America, they don't have coronavirus. But um, we are still doing our best. And I'm very sure that the government is taking the right decisions in order to protect the population from this virus. Talk now about the, the grassroots support in Australia for Venezuela. That's mm -hmm. been a long time. Mm -hmm. 
What are you aware about? It's very good to say your, your, your question because in the last years, if I've been growing up very fast, I have met every day and I receive a lot of communications at the embassy and emails and letters from people that support Venezuela. But I don't ask, want to assume attributes about this because I don't think it's more than people that understand that this is very unfair. Australia is a very multicultural country, as we are, by the way. Many people of my country, and it's something that I need to say today, that are not from Venezuela or even a second generation, more or less like Australia. We are very similar to Australia in that case. People that came from Europe after the war, from Spain, from Italy, from Portugal. We get a lot of people from Middle East also, Syrians, Lebanese, and Palestinians also. And by the way, six million and a half Colombians came to my country in the past 40 years. They are now Venezuelans, so it's 20% of our population. So when Colombia tried to talk about, you know, people going up and down, or maybe going from Venezuela, emigrating from Venezuela, I went to check the numbers because many of these people, these people who are originally from Colombia, which we know a lot. The support of Australia is, is growing very fast. I even though at the parliament, I talk to some parliamentaries frequently, you know, many people, they don't agree with the position of Australia. They don't agree with Trump. They don't agree with, uh, with, uh, with these economic measures, you know, of blockade, you know, a country which is nothing to do. Even, you know, like, why people need to get involved in our internal process? There is something that sometimes Trump wants to try to say to the people, which is not truth, clarify it today. They try to say that Maduro is a dictatorship. You know how many elections have been in my country in the last 20 years? We have 23 elections. I, I'm very sure that there is no country in the world with more than one election in a year in the last 20 years. So I don't think there's a more democratic country in the world, I, I, I put it in black capital letters, in the world, that is more democratic than my country. And by the way, to Jimmy Carter, only a few years, I mean two, three, four years ago, he said in Atlanta that we have the best electoral system of the world. Nobody can say that he's a lefty or he's a chavista or madurista or he's pro-government. <laughs> we, we understand he's not, by the way, in this side. But he recognized that the system is the best of the world. You know that. Best of the world. And, and it's difficult to say that word when you talk about democracy, you know, and then try to, you know, to take a position trying to point somebody as a dictatorship. It's very difficult. By the way, when the opposition, because in these 23 elections, sometimes the government wants majority, sometimes lost. Guaido was elected as a parliamentary in the parliament with a same system that he don't recognize now. So when they won, they recognized it as a good system. But when they lost, they said, oh, manipulated system. It is not fair. This is not working. So how can it work sometimes and sometimes it cannot work? In 2005, 2004, President Chavez, he built a very nice new constitution. He tried to build it and he sent it to, to a referendum. It didn't pass. Very little difference. But he said, I don't want to win this uh, referendum with this little... So I assume we lost it. Some fraud was done at that time. But he said, no worries, because usually President Chavez, he was very strong, big leader. And he said, you know, he always won the election with two, three million votes difference. Very big difference. So he was not, like, he willing to win election with this difference, small difference. So he said, no worries, we lost it. No new constitution. It was very good for the workers, very good for the mothers. Because you know something, in my country in the past, mothers who were taking care of their kids, they were not able to access the social security system. Workers were having large worker time. So now he was trying to reduce this to six hours a day. So many good things for everybody. It didn't pass.
Of course, a lot of pressure from U.S., a lot of money, and, you know, media, because media is still, still at this time, yeah, it's controlled by, by the opposition. The big, you know, capitals are backing the media in my country. So when the opposition tries to say that the government has control of the media, it's not true. If I bring you the list now, you will see still the majority of the media in my country are, are private. And private is, you know, backed by the economic groups. So it's difficult to try to move a country when you have all this opposition, you know. And by the way, small one, but very strong because they have a lot of money. At these times, the media works very well. You know, you cannot go and knock all the doors. You need to get into the people's houses through using the systems. The best example is Australia. So they always are trying to, you know, telling people that government is doing things wrong. And even they do good things or we do good things, they try to show a different case. So this is not easy. But uh, as I mentioned before, there's no more democratic. There's another country in the world which is more democratic than Venezuela. Uh, there's no more. I, I, put, I, I, I can go into any debate with anybody trying to, to show me which is the most democratic country. Well, I, I'm very sure that we will want. And that's why it's so important for people to go and see for themselves. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's why we try people. We ask people to go in there. In this case, in general, we got six people from Australia. And by the way, because of the blockade, we left back behind one uh, very good comrade from New Zealand and one from Fiji. But certainly from Australia was a big delegation, six people. They saw it with their own eyes. You know, Vinnie Molina, who is uh, a very good comrade, he did a wonderful report. Also, Paul Keating from uh, MUA, he went there. And also Lucho uh, Riquelme from Melbourne. So many people from, from Australia, from many places, different places, by the way, they went. So now we are trying to do these reports in order to let people know what they saw. What's the real Venezuela, which, which you don't see in the media, which you will never hear in the radio, which you'll never see, you know, in the TV. If you turn on here the TV or you, you check the, the papers here, you don't see a good word about my country. I read the papers every day. That's part of my job. It is amazing. At the beginning, I remember that I was asking for refutal every day. Now I don't have time because they are too much. So. But you know what they do? They copy exactly U.S. media. Exactly. They don't change a word. So how can they be fair? Never. You're looking forward to a few more years here? Oh, I'm still here. <laughs> and when I'm a soldier, so when, I mean, when they ask me to go back, I will back. If they ask me to go anywhere, I will be anywhere. I will be supporting the Bolivarian Revolution for my whole life. And just looking back on the years that you've been here, what's been a high point for you? Well, it's certainly the people I met here. People, that when they do solidarity, they give us a lot of energy. I always mention it in all the meetings. I thank to the people because you see these people, you know, trying to help, going up and down, asking for questions, putting papers, sending documents to Parliament. And you say, wow, they, they give us a lot of, you know, energy. Because you see that even though we are on the other side of the world, there are still people who trust in what we are doing. And that's very important for us, Jan. It's very important for anybody. Because, you know, you just get stronger because of this energy from the people who still... And they make me sure that I'm not in the right path. I'm very sure that I'm in the right path. And this is because of this energy of the people who support us. Okay, thank you. No, thank you, Jan. And that was the Chargé d'Affaires from Venezuela in in Melbourne last week. He's usually in Canberra, but I'm pretty sure that he spends a fair bit of time wandering around Australia. As he said, it's a, a big country and it's a big responsibility he has. But he was in Melbourne and he was in Ballarat and Bendigo at public meetings last week. So 
just to let people know and to speak with some of the people who were on the trip that went there a couple of months ago. We heard from Joe Montero, who's one of those. We heard Joe when he came back. But that's um, the truth or the, the story that you won't get about Venezuela on the mainstream media. It's now 5.23 and this is Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. Underneath the ground at the Olympic Dam Mine, there is an old sleepy lizard. BHP is mining right into that lizard named Kalta, and it's not so sleepy anymore. Y'all frogs and lizards, I really know. Mining company, gotta go. The lizard returns protestable 2020. Uncle Kev is putting out the call. This is an invitation to all people and protectors of the land and waters to get involved in the creation of Autonomous Zone as we move for peace and justice. BYO, your own creative response to the nuclear industry and BHP's water theft. Keep an eye on the Lizard Revenge page on Facebook or check out our website for history and info and updates on the lizardbitesback.net. The Lizard Returns Protestable, the 3rd to the 6th of July, Arabana Country. See you there. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... Frisier Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976, and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape, and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch, and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers, and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Reading from Wikipedia. Kurdistan or Greater Kurdistan is a roughly defined geocultural historical region wherein the Kurdish people form a predominant majority population and Kurdish culture, languages and national identity have historically been based. Kurdistan roughly encompasses the northwestern Zagros and the eastern Taurus mountain ranges. To talk about the history, the present and the possible future relating to the Kurdish people, I spoke with Theon Skiotis, a member of Australians for Kurdistan, but asked him first how he became an activist for Kurdistan. Around the uh, siege of Kobani back in um, 2014, and I saw a letter in the, the Age by Professor John Tully from Vicuni about that, and uh, I responded to that. 
And among other things, he suggested that there was a small solidarity group called Australians for Kurdistan that very much needed support and needed people to get involved. So I went along and I've been involved since then. Okay, for, well, from my reading of, of Kurdistan or Kurdish areas, there's southeastern Turkey, there's northern Syria, there's northern Iraq and northwestern Iran. Has there ever been an actual country of Kurdistan? There actually was very briefly back in the 30s, which was uh, something to do, I think, with the, the um, I think it was in, in Iraq, the Iran area that's now Iran. But um, that didn't last long, it was a matter of months. So that aside, no, there hasn't been ever. And the Kurdish area is very large and the population is quite significant. They say it's the largest population in the world that doesn't have its own country. The estimates do vary quite a bit. As you can imagine, there's no kind of census taken in those areas for political reasons, but um, the estimates range from about 30 to 50 million people. That's an awful lot, isn't it? It is indeed, yeah. And are they discriminated against in each of those countries, those four countries? They are, in different ways. So Turkey has a very nationalistic approach to its minorities. You know, for a long time, Kurdish was banned as a language. Uh, These days you can speak Kurdish, but there's all kinds of repression of Kurdish people in Turkey. In Syria, under the Assad regime, the Kurdish language and culture and politics were suppressed. They were very active in the north and east of Syria. In Iran, the regime there is very down on the Kurdish population. In fact, a lot of the protests recently have been in, in the Kurdish area, the Kurdish province. In Iraq, you have a situation where you know, the Kurdish population in the north is large enough to have its own, what's called the Kurdish regional government. So there's a degree of autonomy under the national Iraqi government. Unfortunately, that government is Western-oriented, capitalist, quite corrupt, is widely a widely held observation. Um, they cooperate with Turkey in suppressing the Kurdish freedom movement. They cooperate with them militarily, with intelligence and so on. So they're not uh, a fantastic government for the Kurdish people either. So there's a struggle for autonomy, I suppose, in each of those four countries. Yes, and, it's, and, and there's you know, a significant degree of um, unity. Um, you know, there are different parties and bodies in the different areas, but there's a common vision, I think, which is often referred to as the Kurdish freedom movement or the Kurdish liberation struggle. And very interestingly, the aim is not for an independent country, an independent nation-state called Kurdistan. That might have been the um, objective once, but it no longer is. The, the aim these days is to gain a significant degree of autonomy and freedom and be able to run their own affairs, also be able to you know, essentially do away with those rigid international borders and be able to visit each other and, and have, have uh, contact between the regions. But not so much to have a country called Kurdistan, but to have, as I said, freedom and autonomy to run their own affairs. And these ideas are reflected in the views of the uh, Kurdish leader, Abdullah Ocalan, and they've been very influential. So, for example, in... Rojava in northern and eastern Syria, uh, where I guess the ideas or the, the um, approach of the Kurdish liberation movement has been able to be expressed most obviously or most clearly. The aim is not to have a separate country. They're okay with being part of Syria, but as long as they have the ability to control their own affairs, to be able to express themselves freely, organise themselves, and they have organised themselves in very, very interesting ways. I'll take you back a few years to mm. the PKK and the man who's now 
rotting in jail on an island, is that correct? He is in jail on an island in Turkey. He's in very difficult circumstances, isolation most of the time. He's only rarely allowed to see family or his lawyers. On the other hand, I wouldn't say rotting because he, he's been a found, absolute fount of ideas and writing when he's able to. You know, so it's actually uh, in jail that Abdul Ojalan has come up with a really interesting approach to how to organise and undertake the Kurdish liberation movement. Talk uh, about why he's there. What was happening in those years? Well, look, he was actually in Syria, in northern Syria, many years ago and was there for some time and then the Turkish regime pressured Syria, the Assad regime, to kick him out. Um, they threatened to turn off water, essentially, to, to Syria, have that degree of control upstream on the, the main rivers. So Assad did respond to that by asking Ojalan to leave. Uh, he spent some weeks and months, I think, sort of shuttling around. He went to Italy, went to Greece, went to Moscow briefly. And interestingly, he was on his way to South Africa, uh, he was invited to or offered asylum there by Nelson Mandela. I had an interesting chat recently with someone who knew all about this, who was involved with the ANC. But sadly, he never got there. It's interesting to speculate what would have happened if he had. But he was in Nairobi on the way to South Africa, and um, I think the CIA played a role in informing the Turkish intelligence where he was. I think you know, there's rumours that Mossad played a role, and... The Greeks certainly played a role in pushing him out. He was at the Greek embassy, I think, in Nairobi, and then went on his way to the airport and was seized uh, on the way and uh, abducted by Turkish intelligence, smuggled to Turkey, back to Turkey, and put on trial there. Just want to go back to that connection with the ANC. Sure. So um, it's an interesting one. So I was in Europe recently and met Reverend Sidney Luckett, who's a... A very interesting guy, older guy, who was involved in the ANC and the anti-apartheid struggle. Um, so someone that he knows, uh, the late uh, Judge Esad Musa, I think is the name. Nelson Mandela asked him to uh, make the invitation to Abdullah Ojalan. So he was the contact point with the PKK. Who were the PKK? Or who are the PKK? So it's the the Kurdistan Workers' Party. They were set up in the early 80s, I think. Well, no, sorry, it might have been the 70s, but Essentially, they're a um, Kurdish liberation organisation. They have waged an armed struggle in Turkey, or that they had. It's now, for the most part, um, a defensive one against Turkish attacks, and most of the guerrillas are actually located outside of Turkey itself, um, across the border into Iraq. They're the main Kurdish group that uh, fights for Kurdish autonomy and freedom. That's, it's clear that there's mass support for the PKK. You know, that's been tested and demonstrated many, many times. The Australian government has labelled them as a terrorist organisation? Sadly, the Australian government has done just that, yeah. So um, the then Prime Minister of Turkey, uh, Erdogan, visited Australia in 2006, uh, met with John Howard. Um, they discussed, among other things, the need for greater cooperation around security. And within a few months or a few weeks, I think, of Erdogan departing, the Australian government took steps to list the PKK under the relevant legislation as a terrorist organisation. So that came through in early 2006, I think. I think the visit was in late 2005. And it's been renewed ever, ever since then. It comes up every, used to be every two and now every three years. And we're about 18 months at the moment through the most recent listing 
And what does that listing mean? It means that it's illegal in Australia to be a member of the PKK or to provide material support to it. You can argue that it shouldn't be listed and you can argue that it's a good organisation and provide that kind of intellectual support, but you can't provide, you can't send money or funds, you can't be a member, you can't train with them uh, or anything like that. So they're effectively banned as an organisation in Australia. Has anyone been convicted of that? Well, there was a case in New South Wales. Um, There's a chap called Renas Lelikan, who's a journalist, an Australian Kurdish journalist. He went back to Kurdistan um, and spent some time with the PKK as an observer and you know, writing about what he, what he experienced. When he came back, he was charged with being a member of the PKK and also with being a foreign fighter, which is a very serious charge that could have led to a very long jail sentence. That second serious charge was not proceeded with, but he was, in the end, he pleaded guilty to being a member of the PKK. And it dragged on for some time. He spent quite a bit of time in jail in very difficult circumstances where he was threatened by Turkish people who were in jail. In the end, the um, judge in New South Wales made a very interesting ruling. Um, so he was convicted, but sentenced to you know, effectively a community order. And her comments make very interesting reading because she said, you know, he, he was not um, engaged in anything violent, and the intent of the of the movement that he was part of was not. But essentially, if you read what she said, she's saying they're not a terrorist organisation. They are involved in an armed conflict in a defensive way, and uh, yeah. So, so the punishment for him was very, was very much seen as uh, very widely seen as a lenient punishment. It was appealed against by the um, by the Australian uh, prosecutor, or the New South Wales prosecutor, and I think that's still pending. Talk about the struggle in northern Syria. Yeah, so you have a very interesting situation in northern Syria. It goes back to when the, there was the first uprising against the Assad regime, uh, part of the Arab Spring uprisings across the region. And in response to that, the Assad regime essentially withdrew from the north, from the Kurdish majority area. So it wasn't a particularly bloody uprising in the north. They, the, the Assad regime simply withdrew its forces. In fact, they didn't even completely withdraw them. They still, they've always run the major airport in that area. So they're still there. Um, there was a little bit of fighting, but very little compared to what's gone on since then. And when they did that, look, the, the Kurdish people were essentially ready. They had the organisation, they had the political organisations ready to begin to run their own affairs. Uh, and they did that. They set up these uh, essentially a sort of confederal structure, with a lot of uh, councils and, and equivalent bodies making decisions and, and having a federating system where delegates are elected to a higher level and so on. That experiment was immediately challenged, almost immediately challenged, by the invasion of Islamic State coming out of Iraq and heading west, uh, and initially making great progress and get it going all the way across west to the city of Kobani on the border with Turkey. And the, uh, the Kurds made a stand there, and, I mean, the place was, there was a lot of fighting. The place was effectively destroyed, but the Kurds did manage to turn the tide. The U.S. got involved in providing aerial support and intelligence and later some arms, but the Kurds did the heavy fighting, the heavy lifting certainly, and and turned the tide and and pushed Islamic State back further and further and eventually defeated them in a territorial sense in Syria. And the role of women? The role of women is very prominent. This is a, uh, it's been called the Rojava Revolution. There's essentially four things that the Kurds are seeking to to, to change and to, to, to set up. Uh, one is 
sort of grassroots democracy. The other is a uh, feminist revolution. They're totally upfront about that. That's a major part of what they're doing. Huge numbers of women in Rojava are, are armed and defending the situation there as the YPJ. The third thing is that they're pluralist, so it doesn't matter what your religion, what, whether you're Kurdish or not, um, there are lots of minorities in that area who are not Kurdish. In fact, the name Rojava is a Kurdish name and they officially don't use that. They call it North and East Syria out of respect for other people who don't use the term Rojava. And the fourth part of what they're on about is ecology. It's a green revolution as well. So, yeah, democracy, feminism, environment, green uh, stuff, and pluralism, which you would think is, uh, are all good values that um, countries like Australia would be able to support. But, in fact, that's not the case. There's absolutely no recognition or assistance or support from Australia. And that's despite the Kurds and their allies there doing an incredible amount to fight back Islamic State, you know, the arch-terrorists of the world, um, betting the back at huge cost. I mean, we're talking about 11,000 young people killed and more than 20,000 very seriously wounded, maimed, and now without any medical assistance at all from the West. And now Turkey's got involved? Well, now Turkey has seen fit to invade, yeah. So you had an area that was rid of Islamic State, um, looking after huge numbers of refugees from the rest of Syria, mostly without any international assistance. So where they weren't under attack, they were, it was a very peaceful area, and Turkey has labelled them terrorists because of their links to the ideological links to the PKK, threatened invasion for many years, and now has invaded initially in Afrin, the, uh, the canton called Afrin, to the west, most west lying of the cantons um, back in 2018. And then late last year, they, or early this year, they invaded the, along the um, remaining border with north, north and east Syria. So it's an uncertain future? It is uncertain. The, the revolution there, the, the, the Kurdish area, or Kurdish and their allies, is in a very difficult position. I mean, they've got Turkey, which is a regional power. You know, its, it's military is part of NATO. It certainly has a huge capacity to cause a lot of havoc and, and suffering. And they're pressing in from the north. And then there's an uncertain future in the other sense that um, the Syrian civil war is probably coming to an end at some point. The Assad regime is severely weakened, but it looks like it's retained power. They were never particularly good friends of the Kurds. There is now, I understand, some dialogue between the Assad regime and the Kurds in the north of Syria, but it remains to be seen where that will go. Um, and, of course, Russia is a significant player there now, and Iran. It's, it's not looking great, and those who are, are, are of a progressive persuasion, I would say, you know, should do everything they can to support the Rojava revolution um, because it deserves our support. It's, it's absolutely you know, very interesting and wonderful experiment in, in doing things, organising things differently on a progressive basis. As I said, it's about democracy, it's about feminism, the ecolo ecology and so on, and really deserves our support even though it's so far away. Well, moving to February this year, we've got marches and we've got a, a big rally in Strasbourg. You were there for that? I was very lucky to be there. Yeah, it was a wonderful thing to do. So a colleague or a comrade from Sydney, Peter Boyle, myself, went over. We took part in a couple of things. One was a march, as you say. It was called the Internationalists' Long March. That so started in Luxembourg and marched through, with the help of buses occasionally, through to Strasbourg. I actually don't know the distance, um, but it, was, it, was, it took... Four or five days. You had people um, putting you up or you had tents? Or? 
Um, we were put up in sports facilities in France. So we, most, of that walk, most of that trip was through northern France. And the, interestingly, the council bodies in the small towns along the way uh, and one larger town, Nancy, they offered these facilities. And in many of them, the mayor or deputy mayor would come along and speak. So they were a little careful in what they said. They didn't ever mention the word PKK. But um, they were very supportive. You know, they said, good on you for this and, and so on. So it was, yeah, we, it was supported by the local councils in, in France and all of the logistics were taken care of by the Kurdish community in that area, food and transport and so on. And then about 120 of us, uh, mostly young people, interestingly, and a lot of people from Spain and the, and the Spanish territories, Basque territory, uh, Catalonia and Spain, about 80 of the 120. And that, they were fantastic. Two other marches as well? Yeah, so there were, there were three long marches. Another one was Kurdish youth who marched from Frankfurt to Strasbourg and Kurdish writers, intellectuals, politicians started in Geneva and marched to Strasbourg. So we all converged on Strasbourg. The uh, reason for that is that well, we arrived on the 14th of February and the day after, 15th of February, is the anniversary of the abduction of Abdullah Öcalan, abduction and imprisonment. So 21 years prior to 15th of February this year was when Abdullah Öcalan was seized. And so there was a big rally in Strasbourg on the 15th, bringing together Kurdish diaspora from all around Europe and the marches. And uh, it was a wonderful event, yeah, a big show. I'd imagine there'd be a fair few Kurdish people who actually live in Germany. Yeah, there's a lot in Germany, um, up to a million people, I think. And a lot of Kurds in France, some in Belgium, some in Switzerland we learned about. So they're, they're a significant diaspora in Europe, far larger than they are here in Australia. Yeah, and they're, they're very well organised. You know, there were buses brought people up from all around Europe to Strasbourg. And what actually was the protest? Where were you, in the centre of the city or um, spread out? Yeah, so we started in the centre near the train station and marched out to a sort of large area where we could um, gather and have... Um, the dancing that Kurdish people love to do, um, and speeches and so on. It was quite a, a good walk through Strasbourg. The day before, the, the marches, those three marches that I mentioned, had gathered again in the centre and marched to the Council of Europe. Um, and there was a, a meeting of some delegates with people at the Council of Europe. Um, so the Council of Europe is based in Strasbourg. It's the oldest and, and largest, broadest membership of the European bodies. So it's, you know, it, it oversees things like the, um, has a convention, I think, on the prevention of torture. So there are representations to that committee around Abdullah Ojalan's imprisonment and treatment. You spoke before about one of the members or the ex-members of the ANC who was there. Can you talk about some of the others, maybe speakers at the march? We had uh, lots of different people take part and speak. On the day of the rally, we had various interesting speakers. Peter and I also attended a conference before the march that was held in Brussels and this was at the European Parliament it's an annual event uh, organised by an NGO called the European Union Turkey Civic Commission so this was the 16th annual conference and that had over two days some really interesting speakers one was the lawyer who handled a case in Belgium that resulted in the PKK being declared not a terrorist organisation so the first kind of breach in the um, in the West designating PKK as a terrorist organisation. And when did that happen? When they're unbanned? It was just confirmed at the highest level in Belgium about the week before we arrived. So it's been a very long-running case, eight or more years. So a series of, I think, 40 individuals and two organisations were charged, and it's dragged on and on and on. Um, at one point, a lower court 
made a decision, as I said, that the PKK is not a terrorist organization, but a, a body involved in a non-international armed conflict, is I think how they put it. And that was appealed. Turkey was one of the parties to the appeal. But, yeah, as I said, just before we arrived in Belgium, the Court of Cassation, which is the, the highest court in Belgium, had decided that the lower court decision would stand. Uh, interestingly, the, within hours of the court making that announcement, the Belgian foreign minister said, oh, but nothing changes. We're still going to treat the PKK as a terrorist organisation, which is an interesting uh, comment, given that I would have thought the, the highest court in the land should be able to decide that issue. But uh, there seems to be disagreement between the executive and the judiciary in Belgium. Now, part of this march was to get the release of Oshelan. Is there any hope of that? Look, I, th- I think there is. You know, it, it doesn't look great at the moment. You have President Erdogan in power in Turkey, eroding democracy at every week by week almost. It's a very belligerent regime, very aggressive. Seems to want to fight at every level with the Kurds in Syria, with, um, you know, other people in the region. But look, nothing stays the same forever. You know, people that do say that he, in fact, despite his swagger and, 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 and belligerence, is actually quite weak. And it's not impossible that he could and his party could lose power in Turkey. Worth pointing out that his party is a majority party in the coalition, but the other coalition partner is a very right-wing nationalist organisation uh, whose youth wing is called the Grey Wolves. People might have heard of that. It's a, a fascist organisation, and it is a terrorist organisation. So that's the kind of people in power now in Turkey. That won't be the case forever. You could have a change of government, and you could have people who are prepared to go back to the, the brief peace initiative about 2015-16 where the Turkish state was talking to the PKK and talking to Abdullah Öcalan and it's by no means impossible that his freedom could come with a broader solution to the Kurdish issue in Turkey. How old is he now? I think he's in his 70s. He's been in jail now for 21 years. You know, people sometimes refer to him as the Kurdish Nasser Mandela. It's an apt comparison, I think. It's a long time to be in jail. And the other obvious point is that he's very, very obviously, if you talk to Kurdish people, the leader of the Kurdish movement, um, hugely respected and admired. And as I said earlier, able through you know, sheer force of intellect, I think, and, and will um, to make a significant contribution, even though he's in jail and, and it has almost, is almost in isolation, only has very rare contact with his lawyers and family, despite that he manages to get um, to communicate and, and to... Uh, also to write, and, and, and his books from jail have been very, very influential on the movement. How do they get them out? Um, look, I, I think most of them were done when there was a period where he was on trial, so he was given access to books and writing materials. I think that's, there's been a clamp down on that in more recent years. And look, his books made it out to the movement, um, and then were eventually you know, published as books and eventually translated, so they are now available more widely and in English. And they're absolutely fascinating because they, you know, I think the PKK, there was a time when it was described as a Marxist-Leninist organisation, really like a lot of liberation movements around the world. But then Ojalan had other ideas come in and sort of contribute to a different approach. He was heavily influenced by an American Jewish anarchist called Murray Bookchin. So there's quite a strongly libertarian element to Ojalan's thought, that's where these ideas of what's called democratic confederalism come from. Radically different way of organising on a grassroots democracy basis with communes and councils and so on. 
which and these ideas have been put into practice in Rojava, as I said earlier. Incredibly interesting experiment, I guess, and the aim is to you know, make, make that approach permanent in Rojava, in the north of Syria, and to have an influence elsewhere, I guess. You know? So there's no reason why other people, this isn't a uniquely Kurdish thing, other people can't organise on the same basis. So I think a Syria based on those ideas, with people coming together voluntarily within the country, but with their own autonomy and freedom, could be a very different place to what it is today. Where to now for the struggle, particularly with supporters here in Australia? Well, the struggle goes on, of course, as always. It's quite a critical time. Rajivar is under a lot of pressure, as we said earlier. And so any support that people can give is really appreciated and really wonderful. It's a fairly small group of people here in Australia who are actively trying to support the Kurdish movement. But it's an absolutely fantastic place to work and an area to work in. You know, it really is an inspiring movement. They embody their ideals on a day-to-day basis without any exception. You know, it's just, they're just fantastic people to work with. Look, there is a conference coming up um, that people, I, I should mention, people can get involved in. It's on the 4th of April, Saturday the 4th of April, in the city at the Multicultural Hub in Elizabeth Street. It's, it's a full day. I'd really recommend it for anyone who wants to find out more about what's going on in Rojava and other parts of Kurdistan, wants to find out what the Kurdish movement is about, um, and to discuss those ideas. Anyone who wants to get involved after that and, and provide whatever support we can here in Australia, would be that would be a really great way to start. A contact for the conference? The best contact point is probably the Australians for Kurdistan website, www.australiansforkurdistan.org. So Australians for Kurdistan is a small solidarity group made up of Australians, as the name says, who are supporting the Kurdish freedom movement. So we work very closely with the Kurdish uh, progressive group here in Victoria, the Kurdish Democratic Community Centre of Victoria, and that's now part of a federal federated group around Australia. So, um, yeah, we work closely with our Kurdish comrades. Thanks, Fionn. No problem. Thank you. And I was speaking there with Fionn Skiotis from Australians for Kurdistan. And that... Um, meeting is well, hopefully it'll still be going it's not for a couple of weeks it's saturday the 4th of april it's at the multicultural hub 506 elizabeth street in the city it's a conference titled the kurdish freedom struggle and the ideas of adala Ashalan. it's organized by the federation of Dem- democratic kurdish society australia the kurdish women's league of victoria rojara Solidarity Sydney and Australians for Kurdistan. So that's Saturday the 4th of April and I think it's a, an all-day conference. I think it starts about 9.30. This Kurdish struggle, freedom struggle and the ideas of Abdullah Ojalan. And I think if you got onto the webpage of Australians for Kurdistan you'd find out more about it. That's about all I've got just about for today, but I will give you two more um, those messages again from the government about the coronavirus. Viruses like flu and coronavirus spread when tiny droplets from coughs and sneezes land on surfaces that others touch. You can help reduce this risk by coughing or sneezing into your elbow or upper arm, or use a tissue and put the tissue in the bin straight after. Then wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. 
Together, we can help stop the spread and stay healthy. Visit health.gov.au to learn more. To help stop the spread of viruses like flu and coronavirus, good hygiene is essential. That starts with washing your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds whenever you cough, sneeze or blow your nose. Prepare food or eat. Care for someone sick, touch your face or use the toilet. Together, we can help stop the spread and stay healthy. Visit health.gov.au to learn more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. And it definitely is a great place to be, 3CR. Coming up very soon, we have Done By Law, but that's all for me for today. But I'll be back next Tuesday at 4. Bye for now. Down the rain, gives my window, bringing back sweet memories. A window pane, you remember how sweet love used to be. When we were together. Thank you.